Mana 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 this is social disgusting welcome to social disgusting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is the managing director of reptiles etc an organization that trains animals for education action and introductions including corporate events film photography phobia coaching and more as well as an animal wrangler having worked in the films like alan partridge alpha papa one of my favorites saint maude an amazing movie and most recently my house please welcome grace dickinson welcome hi hi thank you for coming on and for dealing with technology issues and my inability to understand the concept of time differences. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. The uh, first question that's it's deeply unfair, and I don't even know how to answer it admittedly, but I guess I'll pose it to you, but how are you? Uh, it's a great question. It's a good question, but so many different answers, hey? But um... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, overall, I'm actually really good, thanks. Good. Business has never been busier. Um, which is great, and I mustn't grumble. Now we're coming out of lockdown, so many restrictions that prevented different areas of my work, which is also very much my whole lifestyle, was was restricted and cut off. And now that's coming to an end or getting easier. Every, the phone's ringing and the emails are crazy and it's wonderful, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> but I feel like I'm not allowed to complain. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, work is great, but obviously within uh, some level of consistency. As yes. opposed to just everything coming on and out and on at once. Uh-huh, and to your yeah. point, like to your point, like uh, everything's opening back up. So all of the different, I guess, plates you were spinning are now all spinning at once, and you're probably having to prioritize what to do or what you can do. I guess at this point. Yeah, that's right. And and you know what? I kept. I was very very busy, and in many ways, life didn't feel that much different for me during lockdown because with animals, whether you're a wrangler like I am or whether you're a zookeeper or whether you work with guide dogs is never actually ever a day off anyway because the animals yeah. still need looking after and feeding and that can be a full-time job and I had to uh I was very busy uh working not making any money during the lockdown because I had to come up with all these other different ways of keeping the business afloat you know but now all the like regular stuff is back on yeah it's just absolutely it's very very intense and it, it, it's good but um yeah, I'm, I'm a woman on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I imagine. I um, I imagine that's the bright spot, though, of like the business of reptiles, etc. Just having so many different facets that I guess where certain restrictions prevent you from doing one thing, you had four other, five other, ten other, whatever possibilities of ways you could pivot in the wake of all those. Yeah, right. It's and it, do you know what I've kind of. I think like everyone else at the beginning of uh, lockdown or certainly in the first six months where it really was feeling like doomsday, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. no one knew what was going on. I think, yeah, like everyone else, I had my, my I certainly had my low points, but I've had to, I think just, I've had to remain as positive as possible and philosophical and just make the best of it. And actually it has forced different types of creativity in the way I've developed my business that have been overall immensely positive. So I've just been trying to kind of keep hold of those sentiments and just, yeah, kind of roll with all that stuff, which has been amazing. And I'm just so, so grateful that the film industry was able to pick up again during that, well, certainly in the UK over here, there was a little ease up of lockdown uh, last autumn. And so from that point, I've been back in the film studios again, which has been a total godsend. 
Oh, I imagine. You know, with the different things that I mentioned in the intro mm. that reptiles, etc., does, what does it tend to lean more toward? I guess maybe it's depending on what's needed of you maybe at the time, but is it yeah. more on the movie side at the moment? Yeah, it's, I would, like, if you looked at it from a financial point of view, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, then the vast majority of my work is from is films. Yeah. And then I shoehorn in probably next after that is things like kids parties and like kids like in animal encounters and then country shows and like larger events like fates is really busy in the summer, but obviously nothing in the winter. And then I go into schools and I lecture at universities as well. And I would love to be doing that a lot more. Yeah. But I think like I've only been doing the business full time. I'm in my fourth year of full time. But from 2007 up until four years ago, I was doing it on and off and part time around working as a full time zookeeper and doing other bits and pieces. So actually, it is still a relatively young business if you look at it as a full time thing. So I think think, um, getting in with all schools and whatnot is going to well, everything's happening organically, really. But uh, yeah, I would like to be doing more education. I was curious about this, that I know that. Uh, on a podcast, you had described some of the more, I guess, like reptiles and maybe arachnids and things as being mm. less outwardly charismatic, you know, relative <laughs> to like a dog or a cat, you know, like these things that we can get a pretty easy read on as opposed to maybe a tarantula, for example. Yeah. So with education, is part of that destigmatizing these things or is that intrinsic in what the education is? Uh, it It's exactly what drives me. Okay. You know, when... When I'm at a film job or whatever and people are going, oh, you know, so what other animals do you have or what do you do? And usually I describe it by um, just saying, oh, you know, all the animals that no one else likes, that's (laughs) what I do. And everybody knows exactly which animals I'm talking about. You know, the snakes, the spiders, the rats and mice, all all that um, stuff that are, you know, medieval and uh, Neanderthal selves you know, loathe because of our evolutionary history, you know, and our our brain wiring, which is fine. I don't hold it personally against anybody. Um, I recognize that I'm the unusual one. Um, But yeah, that's that's kind of why I'm so passionate about sharing these animals with people and teaching people how to appreciate them by looking a bit closer and maybe understanding their biology and behavior and that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, definitely. Okay, I mean, it makes sense, too, because obviously they need advocates in general, because obviously they're not going to speak for themselves. And if they do, that opens up a whole other door. <laughs> but, but like, uh, I don't know, I just, I guess, like, the a part of my thought process, too, was, like, just the learning about a thing demystifies it. And understanding, like, you know, what what they provide to nature and the world and the importance of them and not to just kind of reflexively like see a cockroach in your house and then want to murder it because it's in your house and you're scared when that thing is scared too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I, I, I can sit here and say, oh, I'd like to do more work in schools because education. But one of the things that I enjoy most about the film work isn't just training challenges with animals, but you're basically sitting around all day, not doing very much on a film set because that's how it is. And you just chat to people. And even when I'm in those environments, you know, where effectively I'm there, you know, working in the entertainment industry or even if I'm doing corporate events, you know, like walk about with the snakes, people want to talk to you about the animals. And so really, actually, any time I take an animal out, I'm educating with it. And 
that was you mentioned the film Saint Maud, which I've been banging on about to everyone for about a year or so because it it affected people and people noticed the cockroach, not just the people I worked with on the set, you know. Yeah. And it, I which it seems crazy to me because I've done a you know countless movie shots like that with animals like that, but this one for some reason people really noticed and wanted to know more about it, and it just blew everyone away. And that was such a thrill for me that such a little critter can kind of reach people and make people start asking questions, you know. And I I did so many interviews, you know, and in the States as well. And the Empire movie mag did a little bit and just so funny and and amazing, really, because it is a fantastic film as well. And it was great to work on it. And a lot of people probably still won't realise that all the A to B stuff we did. So where she's crawling on the ceiling where she goes, comes out of the sink and goes across the floor. All of that was trained behaviours as well. She was doing all of that as we directed her to. Whereas most people think, oh, you know, you just film it and CG it or whatever. But every cockroach you see in that film is Nancy. Well, that's what's wild about it. And to your point about like doing different press and stuff for St. Maud, that was my introduction to you where I read yeah. a written interview where, where you had talked about it. And it's wild because when I was watching the movie, even before reading that stuff, a part of me at certain points did think it was CGI because it was just so, it was just doing things that I, I didn't anticipate, you know, and it was doing it in such a, an interesting way, I guess, but also like, I know it's that Nancy, the cockroach, is credited in the movie, <laughs> yeah. but like, she's a genuine character in that movie and plays a pretty pivotal role. So, you know, and it's also a fantastic movie, so that goes a long way too. Sure, yeah, and I, what was, I think that was what the thing was. I think it was because of her symbolism in the film, yes. that was why people noticed. And I don't know what was in the water that year, but that was the second invertebrate I did that was used for a religious reference point, which was really wild, you know, after 19 years of doing this. <laughs> and then I do two in the same year. And the other one, I, I must admit, I haven't actually seen. I need to track it down and see if it's still on Netflix. I filmed with John Malkovich on a Netflix series called the new pope yeah i haven't seen that but i know exactly what you're talking about yeah and it's one of my favorite boasts ever because john malkovich what a legend yeah and it was just a dream working i had to teach him how to handle these millipedes because there was a scene where well they used the millipede as a god reference all the way through i think that episode or that series so we used different millipedes for different shots where he and his twin brother are as children are watching one crawl on a branch or whatever. And then you see it sort of appear throughout his life and he's got one in a glass case and he ends up extracting, pulling one out of his father's ear, which was really weird scene to do and quite difficult actually, because you've got to choose the right animal that's the right size and get it used to being handled and then get it in the guy's ear safely so it won't go in the ear or fall out. And <laughs> Good Lord, yeah. Yeah, and I thought how cool that, this little bug has got this massive symbolic reference. And I think I shot that probably about three months before I started on St. Maud. Yeah. That's wild. The ebbs and flows of that. It's like, yeah, to your point of you don't do it for 19 years and then suddenly you've got 15 of them and you're like, what is happening right now to where bugs are playing pivotal roles metaphorically or otherwise in these different, I guess, religious, well, in this case, religious themed shows. And yeah, I love it. But you know, the film industry is like that. And you start to get a 
sort of sixth sense for how a year is going to go almost. For example, this year, the theme of the majority of inquiries and jobs I'm getting is pets. So many jobs for like hamsters and rabbits and guinea pigs and other sort of pet animals, even exotics that are used as pets. Never, you know, crazy. And then uh, many years ago, uh, when I was working in-house for another company that was a large zoo that specialised in film, we did something like four zebra jobs in one year, which might not sound like a lot, but it actually is a huge amount of zebra jobs. You might normally do one a year or one every other year. And then we did four in one year. And then another year, two mastodon jobs. So big, dead, fake woolly mammoth that you chuck live wolves and vultures on. Crazy. That's wild. Mm. And incredibly specific. Very specific and even more specific, which you wouldn't know because the release dates were staggered by about two or three years. Uh, That particular company had been doing pilots and test shoots for a live action jungle book for about 12 years and none of them ever went to fruition. And then at the exact same time, Disney and Warner both shot a live action jungle book at the same time. One went to Netflix, one went to the movies, and they were the release dates were staggered two years apart, but they were filmed in the same year. I was going to say, yeah, Mowgli and, uh, Mowgli and the Jungle Book. I remember mm. each of those movies, I think Andy Serkis directed one, and then the John Favreau one before that. Yeah, it is wild how, you know, not to go on off on a tangent, but wild how, like, studios always have these wildly similar, if not identical movies that are dueling constantly at the same time. You know, like Armageddon and Deep Impact in the 90s. It was like the disaster movies and the Alexander the Great movies. And it's like, oh, that's a great idea. And then they just kind of crib each other and then do the same type of thing. Yeah, I think it's probably about an even mix of just general, like, subconscious cues coming through cultural references and fashions. Yeah. But obviously still take time, don't they, to kind of hit the market. And I think also for, for movies and things, you get people that might send a treatment round to multiple different production companies. And because everybody in every job role in film freelances, you know, ideas get spread that way as well. That makes sense. That makes total mm-hmm. sense. It does still seem weird in real time. <laughs> as Yeah, from the outside looking in, it's definitely wild to be like, oh, okay, well, in some instances where you're like, oh, I didn't know we needed one of those, let alone three in the course of 18 months or whatever, where, uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, that's that's wild. You know, although, like, groupthink does come to point to your point, and, like, there are no secrets in Hollywood <laughs> or otherwise, so everybody knows everything at all times. I did want to ask for fast. Admittedly, I couldn't remember animals coming into play in the movie, although it has been a minute since I've seen it, but Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, which is one of my favorite movies, at least the last 10 years, I think it's unbelievably funny. But what did you do on that? Uh, the seagull that lands on his crotch. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> I forgot about that. I remember and that. And training seagulls is really hard because they're so, so nervous, which you would never believe if you've ever been to the seaside in England. They're so very aggressive and bold and will steal an ice cream as it's on the way to your mouth. Yeah. Um, but actually working with captive ones and training them is really challenging because they're very, very nervous. <laughs> yeah, to your point, I wouldn't have expected that. Like, yeah, if anything, it feels like in the wild, as it were, they're brazen. Or maybe that's just that they're maybe they're overcompensated because they're nervous. And then I they think really their go life for it. is so extremely tough. They just have to be extremely aggressive to survive. Fair enough. 
can um, can relate on a very minor level. And they are, but they're really intelligent birds. And normally, the cleverer the bird, the harder it is to train because they're more suspicious of unknown factors and new places and things like that. Um, and seagulls as well, if they get super nervous, they'll just automatically regurgitate any food you've already given them. Oh, wow. You know, because they, they think, I'll prepare in case I have to fly away quickly so I'm not carrying extra weight. So you have to like give them a really wide berth and just go softly, softly. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's quite literally fight or flight. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild. What I, I was not to completely backtrack, but I was curious... How many animal specimens are in your collection at any one time, do you think? Um, it's a, the, my most asked question that I can never provide an answer to. Fair enough. So usually I'm averaging around 40 different species, and it depend, there's different ways you can count. So um, I tend to count colonies. For example, you know, X, Y, or Z species of cockroach or beetle, I'll count a colony as one, because otherwise it would just be hundreds, you know. So if you count colonies as one, there's normally around 70 heads. But if you count the heads in the colonies, it could be anything like up to 500. Wow. And they're all in my house. (laughs) (laughs) How much of your day, I guess, is just from a a maintenance standpoint? Because I'm I'm sure that's just constant. Um, Yeah. So it depends. It depends on the day of the week because I tend to reserve, you know, set days for doing bigger jobs. You know, so like some things you do a quick clean out every day something you need to do a great big clean once a week or like water changes on aquatics and things like that okay. um, but I kind of whip around and do sort of all my basic maintenance every morning probably for a couple of hours and then sometimes there'll be bits and pieces to do throughout the day um if I'm feeding I feed all the big snakes on the same day and that can take sort of 30 40 minutes sometimes an hour if they're being idiots <laughs> And then, yeah, on a big clean day on a Friday, my whole day will be devoted to just getting everybody super clean. And then if I've got training assignments on, so if I've got a film coming up that requires prep of any kind, I might be training that particular animal, anything between once and up to five sessions a day, which can vary in time from 10 minutes to half an hour or longer. How much lead time do you generally have for movies and training like that or i guess how much do you tend to have for something like that it varies wildly yeah so for example last week i got a phone call at 8 a.m asking me to take a rat into a movie that i hadn't filmed on for a month wow (laughs) and luckily the rat i took out was already being prepped for another job so he was pretty happy to go out on the road because he was all he'd already been in training for something else so that was fine and he only had to be in a cage but even when animals are kind of being in a container for example you know in a cage even we even do prep for that for example we get them used to waiting around in a holding box and going on journeys in the car because if you take a rat that's never been on a car journey and you get it to the studio, it's going to be pretty traumatized yeah. or at least low level stressed, you know. So when I've got rat jobs for most of these animals, actually, when I've got jobs coming up, if it's animals that aren't going out all the time, I'll take them on drives around the block. Or if I'm going to the shops to get groceries, I chuck the animals in. So they're just getting used to all the coming and going and whatnot. And then if you've got a trained behavior or even if they've got to just you know, enjoy the day out as opposed to be scared on the day out. When you get to actually the big day, they're super cool with with everything. Yeah, I never thought about that, about having to 
obviously not only do the training part, but then also as much as you can normalizing all of the lead up to the actual performance. Mm, Exactly. So technically that's training as well, which you can't expect a studio to pay you for that because they think it's ridiculous or they don't understand, you know, the finer nuances of animal behavior. So uh, it's a big problem for the likes of the animals I specialize in, you know, rat as a fine example, and mice, I do a lot of stuff with, you know, brown rats and mice in a barn, in a prison cell, in a dungeon, in a street mm-hmm. at night, for example. And you turn up and they don't realize you've trained the animals. So I'll do the journey prep. And then as a basic, I'll train every animal to run from A to B into a safe box. And it knows that if it gets spooked or if I send it, it can go in there, it'll get a reward and it's safe in there. It's not <laughs> going to get messed around with. And that way I can position safe boxes on a on an open set or a set that's got lots of escape points. And it almost functions like having extra handlers there because you know the animals are going to go in their boxes and stay there. I never thought about this, though, that part of your job, too, is unofficially, I suppose, is to you're advocating for what probably set to set what animal wranglers do, like actually do if it's a director that hasn't encountered one to your point about like not realizing fully what that entails. Oh, yeah, definitely. And working with production teams that haven't worked with animals before can be really challenging because some people just don't don't give the same consideration. Well, some people don't give the consideration to any species, but a lot of people aren't going to think about welfare for a rat or a mouse or a bug the same way as they would a dog or a cat or a horse. But then when you've spent a day working with them, everyone's minds are blown and um, and people get it, you know. But we get to know different directors and firsts who we work with regularly. And when they see the difference between hiring animals that have been prepped and trained versus someone that's just turned up and chucked a rat on the floor, you know, the difference is phenomenal in terms of the types of shots you get and how fast you get results as well, you know, when the animals are prepared and experienced. Yeah, so we train all that. And normally I I need or I would ask for two weeks prep for rats to go and do that kind of thing. And I'll train them a couple of times a day just to get them, you know, really confident um, and whatnot. And then um, yeah, you can't really charge that. And you turn up and they go, right, so can you just chuck it on the floor and let it be a rat? And I say, well, no, tell me exactly what you want, because I know you don't want this animal to act like a rat, because that will involve the rat hiding and you won't see it. And they're like, oh, well, we'd like it to run across the middle of the floor, which is a totally unnatural behavior for rats, by the way. They'll always cling to the perimeter. So they're running against an edge because they feel more safe. So if somebody wants a rat to run across the middle of the floor, I need like maybe up to a month to train the behavior specifically. It's part of, I would say, yeah, part of your job too, I guess, is advocating I mean, obviously for the rat, but also what can be done and also what, realistically speaking, should be done. Yeah, definitely. And I'm my own or or animal wranglers in general, we're our own worst enemies, really, because everybody has these preconceptions or these existing ideas about how animals naturally behave, which are nearly always completely wrong because of what they've seen in the movies. (laughs) So we're basically training the animals to behave how people think they behave which isn't how they would naturally behave, if that makes sense, which is why people don't want to pay you to train them because they think that that's not a, a natural, they think it's a natural behavior. Oh, so like, yeah. Does that it, make it's, sense? It's their cinematic behavior as opposed to their, you know, to your point of like, this is what we we see. So we just assume, I saw it in the movies. 
So that's yeah, just how exactly. they do it. Or everybody's had that one experience where they've been walking in the country or they were a kid growing up and they went in a barn and a rat jumped out of a sack and ran across the middle of the floor and it scared them. Okay, but that's a once in a lifetime experience. That's not how every rat behaves. You know what I mean? That was just a fluky thing. But then everyone thinks, well, all rats must just run across the middle of a floor, which no self-respecting rat is going to do because the rat pain tells it, well, an owl is going to come down and eat me if I run across the middle of any open space. Yeah, you're exposed to the elements. And <laughs> and thinking about it cinematically, in my brain, I'm like, oh, you're exposed to things like owls who can <laughs> take you out. But again, that's again, like I've seen one movie one time and then in my brain, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just what happens. You know, it's like everyone saw the birds or whatever and thinks that birds and bats or whatever from the movie is going to all get tangled in your hair you know and everyone's scared of birds and bats <laughs> <laughs> yeah unfortunately the things that we remember most we don't remember mundane interactions we remember yeah. the both extremes of the worst and the best exactly exactly but you know what it, it is what it is and i just i can enjoy going along and working with my animals and uh everybody on the set coming away being like wow snakes are really cool or oh my goodness the python didn't eat me and now i really like snakes or whatever um and you know we all know the movies is the movies don't we yeah hopefully yeah hopefully we know <laughs> that the things that happen in saint maude don't happen in day-to-day -day life <laughs> good lord i do want to ask you too that what is generally the most trained like inherently imminently trainable animal um it depends what you want to do with it. Okay. You know, if you're training like specific behaviors, like this animal has to pick this object and put it over there, or this animal just has to run across the floor all day long, it kind of really varies, you know, and like the animals I work with are generally fairly basic and I, I rarely have to do anything super challenging with them, thankfully. Mm -hmm. I mean, working at the other zoo where I was with a lot more exotics, we had some really challenging stuff. But to be, I don't know. I mean, really, you can achieve almost anything with almost anything if you go about it the right way. Um, we did an amazing, uh, this is when I was at Amazing Animals, we did a brilliant series, which I don't know if it would have reached you in the States, called Our Zoo. And it was a BBC drama series, uh, period piece. And it was all about the true story of how Chester Zoo which is one of the most well-known zoos in the UK. It's about the beginnings of Chester Zoo. It was started by a war veteran who was shell-shocked and his family post-war um, rescuing a, a camel from a circus and buying some animals off the docks and then just setting up a zoo, basically. Um, amazing story and a brilliant contract to have because we had... Um, he had a pet... I think it was a, a chimp... Um, <laughs> which we changed the character to a squirrel monkey because um, nobody over here in the UK does train chimps and it's a bit dangerous. So we had two mm. squirrel monkeys that were trained to be the part of this one character, Mortimer, who was his little girl's best friend, this monkey. And we had to do all kinds of stuff, um, which is why we train two often, even with rats or hamsters or anything, really, you'll always train at least two animals if it's a big challenging role because they the different personalities of the different animals means they'll have a good aptitude to different skills. And it's better to have two experts at different things rather than one which is 
a master of none. Sure. So one of the monkeys was quite friendly and he didn't mind being held. So all the scenes where he was being cuddled or on her shoulder, that was him. And the other one was very, very smart and a bit hyperactive. And he was trying to do what we call the actions. So everything from running an A to B or stealing an object and manipulating it or eating something. Or he did one where he stole a lipstick out of a girl's pocket and then ran up a curtain with it. And those are, and we we did another one where he was attempting to revive his unconscious owner. So he had to go up to the person and like hug at the finger and like lift the hand up to look at the face. So super super fun and challenging, but very achievable with a, with a clever animal like that. If you go about it the right way, pigeons are pretty fun as well. And you can do a and chickens you can do a surprising amount with as well. <laughs> really? Yes, which I love because everyone's like, chickens are stupid. Like any animal, you just got to figure, if you're using force-free training, so hands off, you've got the reward, you figure out a language that you both understand, which most trainers use something called bridging, which is where you have a whistle or a clicker or a special word that you um, you use, you teach the animal to associate that noise with the food reward. So basically it means yes, you're going to get the food and it allows you to you create a language ostensibly. Exactly. So when the animal figures that out, they'll start being creative and offering you different things because they think they're training you to give them food. So it's a really cool way of training. And the more you do it with an individual, the faster learning happens. So at first it can be quite difficult and take a long time. But once that common language is um, arrived at, you know, if you've got your monkey and it's already learned to go to a marker and go in its box and maybe stand on its back legs, you can very easily use that same clicking or whistling or whatever. You can introduce an object and it'll think, OK, I reckon I've got to do something with this. I'm going to fiddle with it until I hear that mark. Yeah. And it's just, it's also, I imagine, developing for lack of like repeatable actions. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you've got something really difficult to do, like a routine or it's got to walk in a particular thing or, you know, which is essentially more than one behavior, then you'll train each one separately and then join them together. Or you'll reverse the behavior where you start at the end and then get back to the beginning. And that way, nothing's ever overwhelming or challenging. Basically, you want to train in a way that doesn't even provide the option for failure. Gotcha. But different animals learn at different speeds. I mean, they're all complete individuals. Um, you know, I, I'm training some rats to run a tightrope at the moment. And, you know, you have to audition a whole bunch of individuals because some of them are just naturally not really going to have the body or the mind for it. So it's about figuring out what your individual animals are naturally good at because just it's just like people. Anyone can learn to play the piano or sing, right, or play football. But, you know, if, if you run 50 people through a trial, half of them are going to have a natural tendency towards it and it will be easier, whereas the other half would have to work a lot harder at it. Yeah, I imagine, too, that a certain percentage of it is, and maybe this is part of, like, the introduction of learning about them, their temperament, mm. their tendencies is what they're, what they tend to be like is, like, you know, if you... Not even as a joke, if you have like a cockroach that gets nervous, you have to figure out a way to appease that to then be able to allow them to do what they're there to do. To achieve exactly. That. And Nancy, who was on St. Maud, was one of five. And I would have hoped that I could have used more than just one. To, so it was less work for her because they do get tired, you know. Sure. And on a film set, the director wants to shoot the same action 20, 30 times, which you can't always do, you know, unless you've got multiple animals. It just so happened that she just really had the right stuff and the others didn't. 
which is another reason why we double up or you, you have, there's just no shortcuts really. You have to just spend the time just hanging out, interacting, messing around with the animals as a precursor to starting with any of your training goals. You know, I think about that too with like cats and dogs, you know, they're more domesticated, they're more the quote unquote like traditional considered pets that people have and they have been for centuries but it's also like they're the most generally outward and they have the human characteristics that we give them like oh they're hot they're panting they're smiling you know Mm -hmm. these type of things but like just like cats and dogs like a cockroach has an off day and and they have bad days and they get nervous and they get tired and you have to i imagine that part of that too with your job is to just like i said get familiar with them and then kind of intrinsically be able to read the room and to know what they can do not just in general but on the day yeah definitely and uh so and and that only comes just with experience really you know or doing a few jobs and thinking oh this would really help with this and with all of these smaller animals and especially the ectotherms, you know, so the cold-blooded animals that need to have very specific environmental parameters in order to A, stay healthy and be like feel at their best and be motivated. You know, there's no point trying to get a tortoise to run across the room if it's colder than 21 Celsius because it won't actually have the juice, it won't have the energy, it won't physically be able to. It'll be completely powered down. So when we go on the road, so just traveling one hour, two hours, three hours to get to a studio. And when we're set up at the studio, um, we have to think about the life support for these animals and how we maintain their optimum humidity and temperature as well to keep them comfortable and happy and able to work at their best as well, which is a whole extra challenge of working with exotics. Yeah, I and ignorance is bliss on my part. I had no idea just the degree, how many considerations are involved before the job during the job after the job and what all that entails and I guess what I said earlier about neither do the directors and I guess why would they exactly I mean it's one of the reasons that I love chatting to people about it you know to go look this is why what you're paying for yeah (laughs) you know because I imagine so many of them see like oh we need this mouse or this rat to walk a tightrope and then our uneducated minds or at least let me not project mine you just think like, oh, yeah, you just hold a piece of cheese at the other end and they walk down it and we're good. I'm so glad you said that because the number one most frustrating thing I get is from directors or firsts or whatever with rats and mice going, you know, so it's not doing quite what they want. But from my point of view, it's doing brilliantly. And I've already told them in advance that, fun fact, rats and mice will very, very rarely, dare I say it, almost never eat when they're on a film job, not in front of people, not in the open, not in front of the camera. Yet everybody goes, oh, is there not just something we can put on there to make it go and get it? And I'm like, no. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, but why would anyone know that? Because in every movie and cartoon ever... We see rats and mice looking cute, nibbling cheese. And that's, again, that's the cinematic life of a, a mouse or a rat. You know, exactly. what our, our viewpoint is as opposed to, you know, reality. But in thinking about, like, humans are animals. We're all animals. And, yeah, you know what? Guess what? If you're probably acting, you're not going to want to eat a big plate of pasta before you have to go on set because you're nervous. People are there. That mutual energy, whether you're a rat or a mouse or a human being, it's all there and we all feel that. Exactly. And, and you know, and I try not to use the word stress because it has very negative implications. And people think, oh, my God, is this a welfare issue? No. Everyone's under stress on a film set, but 
you know, not to the point where we're going to be affected detrimentally by, you know, there's low level stress when you're doing any type of dynamic thing or taking an animal out on the road. It's how you've prepared them to deal with it. I normally use the analogy of, you know, imagine you've just been uh, chucked out of a car in the middle of a field and you can see predators all around. There's mountain lions everywhere. Your priority is not going to be to sit down and have a picnic. And that's exactly how it is for rats on a film set. So, you know, they've been they've been on a car before. That wasn't a problem. They've walked across a field before, you know, they're set before. But then they're definitely food is not their priority. And so that's why I use safe boxes, because you can with time and training and practice, they will be happy to eat food rewards inside a dark box because they feel safe inside the dark box. So the way to reward them with food, of course, inside a dark box, you know, and they'll prioritize being going being in a box over having food if they had the option of you know if they could choose between the two so even if they don't feel comfortable eating in the box the presence of the box and being able to spend three minutes in the box is the reward for them oh okay so it's more of i guess like it's it's as much like psychologically what that does for them exactly like it's our first thing is to assume that we would train every animal for food because that's what we would like but different animals have different things that they might prefer as a reward and for rats and mice it's having a time out in a dark space for a dog it might be chewing on their favorite toy or playing with a ball for a parrot it might be a scratch behind the ear you know it's not always about food rewards i imagine yeah too with with depending on what again talking about like temperament and things like mm. that not everybody needs a chew toy just because that's what 99 out of 100 dogs need or a safe exactly. box. It's kind of pivoting to like like any like a human. What do I need to do on my end to put them in the best possible position to succeed and to be happy while doing it? Exactly. Or like think about if you've got kids or you know anyone with kids and you've got to do a trip to the doctor or somewhere scary, depending on that individual child and what the activity is, a hug might be more appropriate than giving them some candy. Yeah. And animals are exactly the same. It's that thing where like you hear it, I hear it and and I'm like, it makes so much sense. But then again, I just never thought about it before. <laughs> I say this all the time. And you know what? Animal training and biology, it's so, so true. It's so common. It's completely obvious, but only once someone's pointed it out. Yeah, right? It's just like, uh, <laughs> it's very much like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. But just, that's just not a day-to-day -day consideration that I give or thing that I think about or have any kind of like random thing that would spur an epiphany like that. But to you, it's just like, well, yeah, because that's your day-to-day. -day. That's commonplace for you. But I guess that's part of what, you know, education advocacy does for people is that it just makes them think about something in a way they just never considered. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, even for me, I miss things, you know, and I'm very lucky. I've got a team of colleagues that I've cherry picked that have all come from, you know, they're all qualified animal professionals as well. And I'll very often talk something through with somebody and they'll just point out you know make a suggestion i'll be like oh how did i miss that you know or yeah. this is why there are just so many zookeeper forums on the internet and animal training forums and why we go to conferences and because it's just um i mean it's one of the joys of working with animals really i mean you can't complete it you know you're constantly learning and the animals are just always showing us new things and that makes sense too and i imagine doing this every day of your life goes both ways in that sometimes you can be too close to it mm. and you don't think oh you know that it's like looking at a at a sculpture and then taking one step to the left and it's a minute difference that changes everything from your perspective yeah, definitely and especially with exotics 
especially with exotics, you know, I've talked about how specific and individual your life support systems have to be with, you know, the degrees of ultraviolet you're giving them and how much shade they've got and temperature and humidity and all that kind of stuff as well. We've got this amazing technology and different ways of measuring it. But you can still sort of see a change in an animal and go, well, what the bloody hell's wrong with this animal? I feel like everything's perfect. And then you realise that actually you brought a new piece of furniture into the room a month ago and it's causing a reflection off the back of their enclosure that you couldn't even see from that angle and that's scaring them or something. Wow. All these kind of minute details. So you have to really take a very autistic eye, if you like, at just everything you do and really think, okay, what's the experience for this animal? I need to try and imagine what this animal's experience is to reassess what's going wrong. And the same with training problems. It can be something as simple as you were wearing a hat that day and that's why you had a terrible session because it doesn't like hats very much. Or at certain times of year, the sun is coming in over your shoulder and it means they physically can't see what you're doing so well because their eyesight is different from ours. And, you know, so many different things. I never considered the degree by which the job and the profession is, it's, I guess if we talk about like, you know, you run this race and you see certain people that can do it versus some people that just have a natural aptitude for mm. it. And with that with that job, with your job, you know, education is one thing. And obviously, to a certain degree, people can learn certain things and facts and things like that. But how much of it is about observation and intuition that oh, I never completely. considered? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that, again, it isn't it's a lot of people have it or they don't, but you can learn it as well. And it's like anything, you know, the more you do it, the smarter you get with it, the more instinctive it becomes, you know? Sure. And I, yeah, and I imagine it's the same thing in keeping with the parallel of humans as animals and humans to mm. animals. It's like, same thing, repetition. And, you know, I imagine the nerves in theory lessen the more an animal is on set and has that experience. And just having people talking and milling around and then suddenly stopping so you can do something in front of them and everybody's <laughs> quiet part of that becomes kind of normalized the more yeah, oh, without the repetition yeah with my rats i'll always bring my youngsters out on jobs with the more experienced ones and i'll work the experienced ones and i might just have the, ba the, the babies the youngsters along for the ride or i might just do some casual training with them on the set but they won't be filming so they and I'll do something like that wherever possible with animals like that, because that way they get to grow up with it very normalized. And they definitely, they feed off. If you've got an animal that's very steady and very relaxed, the other animals around it are like, oh, this is okay. You know, if they're new and they're feeling nervous, they can respond positively from the ones that are very relaxed. And when I'm on a set, I'll always like practice my A to Bs and uh, with the rats and things like that. And I'll find a sort of, spare bit of wall you know where there's not much going on and i'll run them up into their boxes and a lot of people will be very considerate you know someone's got to walk past with some stuff and they'll go oh sorry shall i be quiet i'll wait and i'm like no no carry on because there's no point only ever training these guys with everyone being quiet around them because that's not the reality of actually working on a set they might have to run along a wall while an actor is coming the other direction. So they have to learn to just be oblivious to it all. And that makes sense. Yeah, I guess for lack of a nuanced way of putting it, you're trying to get them to in the position to where they think, oh, this again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, we're doing this again. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you before we wrap it up, and this is a, I guess they all are, but an entirely self-serving question. But as somebody who loves like trivia and tidbits and things like that, are there any like animal facts or things you've learned recently that stand out about like, oh, that's cool or that's really interesting? Um, 
sort of like general animal facts yeah anything or any kind of like particular thing that comes to mind i guess oh my normal <laughs> my normal go-to favorite one that entertains people the most which you may or may not know already is that snakes have two penises didn't know that wow yeah that's fascinating there you go. And they are called hemipenes. Okay. Yeah. If somebody were to say that particular word to me, yeah, I guess that's where my brain would go. Maybe that's more about me. <laughs> At that point, yesterday I read something I thought was interesting was, and this is maybe common knowledge for all I know, that the reason like the emu and the wallaby are on the Australian coat of arms is because, and I hope this is right, only two animals in nature or maybe that are indigenous to Australia that can only move forwards. So it's, I guess, the metaphor of that or why they're on the coat of arms. Because they can't walk backwards. Yes, I guess they can only move forwards is what I I'm read. trying to, I'm just casting my, I've, I've spent many, many hours and years working with both those species. And I'm just racking my brain trying to recall if I ever noted one moving backwards. <laughs> I mean, I guess, did you say wallaby? Yes. If wallabies can't, then that means that kangaroos can't as well. I think, okay, I think it is more specifically kangaroos and emus, more than wallabies. But I mean, te technically a wallaby, you could say that a wallaby is a kangaroo. They're in the same family. But And this is me being pedantic as well and nitpicking. Um, oh, no, please, if, if a, please correct me. I would say me. if an, well, no, I'm not, I don't know for sure. I'm just spitballing here. But if an emu can't walk backwards, that means also a rhea and an ostrich and a cassowary, that's the other ratites in that family, which come from other continents. That means they can't walk backwards either. They have basically the same biology. That's fascinating. This, I'm glad that I incorrectly posed this in because I actually I want to be more specific and accurate as possible. I mean, so it doesn't mean, it's, doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not the whole truth, maybe. I'm that's sure fair. they can move backwards. I mean, I've... I've looked it up. It says right here, the shield is held up by the native Australian animals, the kangaroo and the emu, which were chosen to symbolize a nation moving forward based on the fact that neither animal can move backwards oh, I easily. See. Not easily. that they are the so only ones on the continent. Yes. Okay. Ah, right. Because I... Right. And neither can move backwards easily. So that's why. Okay. Easily. So, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm certain I've shuffled an emu backwards before. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> this has been a delight. Thank you so much for your time and for doing this. I um I I really really do appreciate it. Oh, it and really I, is it's my pleasure. Anytime. What all, if anything, do you want to point people toward before I wrap it up? Um. So I guess I should do the promote self promotion plugging bit, shouldn't I? Please. If anybody would like to ask me any questions, I'm honestly always happy to do that. And you can find out more about my business and my life, which is all pretty much the same thing. My website is www.reptilesetc.co.uk and I've got two Instagram accounts. One is at Grace Dickinson's Wildlife where I do, it's mostly videos like little facts and stuff like that or if you'd like to see the true insanity of <laughs> my, my life, job, whatever it kind of is, all rolled into one, my personal account is Reptiles Etc on Instagram. Oh, and we're on Facebook as well, um, which is probably the most regularly updated one with like our work assignments. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with the movies and stuff that we're doing and when we're taking the animals out training, that one's Reptiles ETC on Facebook. And I think it's currently got a picture of me and one of my buddies with a great big yellow python sort of wrapped around us as the little profile picture. Awesome. Thank you again, Grace, for doing this. This was so fun. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure, honestly. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. 
please wear a mask, get vaccinated, and stay safe. Be safe around other people, and take care of yourself. Thank you again for listening, and goodbye.